1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson
1: and I'm Holly Fry.
0: We are concluding a two part episode today. In part one of this show, we gave some background about the Fort Shaw Indian School which was part of the federally run system of off-reservation boarding schools that were meant to assimilate in sort of scare quotes, native students into white culture or at least to get native students to conform with white culture. It didn't actually assimilate. There was still a lot of racism and discrimination after people went through these programs. We also talked a bit about the history of basketball and how girls' basketball at Fort Shaw quickly became the best basketball team in Montana. Today, we are picking up with the St. Louis World's Fair, where the team spent about four months in 1904 becoming the world champions there. As was the case in the previous episode, we are still getting into some pretty abhorrent racism here. And there is also a brief mention of animal cruelty.
1: In 1903, Fort Shaw Indian School was, as we mentioned at the end of the previous episode, uh, invited to participate in the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, also known as the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, so named because it was meant to start a year earlier and mark the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase. This was, of course, also the subject of the 1944 film starring Judy Garland, which is spectacular. Yeah.
0: It's also totally not surprising that 40 years later, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer made a musical out of this. This fair was huge. The 1904 World's Fair ran from April 30th to December 1st, during which time more than 20 million people attended it. The fair site, which was the largest ever for a World's Fair, covered 1,200 acres. that was dotted with about 900 buildings, including 15 exhibit palaces, The exhibitors included 62 nations and 43 of the then
1: 45 United States states a mile-long avenue called The Pike was full of vendors and amusements. It seems like every ubiquitous American food, from hot dogs to ice cream cones, was supposedly introduced at the 1904 World's Fair. But most of those stories, just FYI, are apocryphal. Uh, There were carnival rides, the massive Ferris wheel, Boer War reenactments, a ward of babies in incubators. It just goes on and on and on.
0: A running theme for this fair, as was often the case in these kinds of expositions, was progress. Some of this progress was related to science and industry. The incubators are actually one example. There were meteorological balloon experiments. There was a demonstration of the first ground-to-air wireless telegraph. New technologies from x-rays to electric typewriters got their first public display display. Some things that were still pretty novel to the world at the time got their time to shine, too, including all kinds of other electrical appliances, gasoline engines, and automobiles.
1: But some of it was also about cultural progress. The general idea was that the United States culture was superior and that the nation was having a civilizing influence on the rest of the world, as well as within its own borders.
0: This cultural progress was displayed through large pavilions of living exhibits of thousands of people from around the world. These living exhibits were a common element of the world's fairs and expositions of the era. They functioned almost like temporary human zoos. People actually lived in these for the duration of the fair, and living exhibits were frequently arranged to suggest a progression from the least to the most civilized peoples.
1: One example in St. Louis was the Philippine Village, which covered 47 acres and housed more than a 1,000 people from at least 10 different Filipino ethnic groups. Often the cultural practices that were considered the most taboo from a white Christian American perspective uh, were the biggest draw. In the case of the Philippine Village... This was the Igorot, who occasionally consumed dog for ceremonial purposes. And during the fair, organizers gave them dog to eat every day so that spectators could watch.
0: Fort Shaw's invitation was to participate in the Model Indian School. This was a mock boarding school where students would demonstrate the academic, domestic, and vocational skills that they were taught at school. The Fort Shaw School was not the only Indian school to participate. The model Indian school was to house about 150 students selected from all across the nation's network of Indian boarding schools, specifically schools that were located within what had been Louisiana Purchase Territory.
1: The school was part of a section of the fair that came to be known as Indian Hill, where about 550 Native Americans, mainly from tribes within the Louisiana Purchase Territory, were on display. At this so-called Indian Reservation, 14 different tribes had individual areas that demonstrated their traditional housing and living arrangements, clothing, food, and cultural practices. This simultaneously illustrated the diversity among the nation's indigenous peoples, while also sending a message that they were, at least in the organizer's view, primitive.
0: The model Indian school was in the middle of Indian Hill. It was a three-story building that faced an open plaza, and it was surrounded by these 14 miniature communities, School was in session from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and visitors could observe a kindergarten class from Pima Indian School in Arizona Territory, a seventh-grade class from Chilico Indian School in what's now Oklahoma but was then Indian Territory, and a wide array of domestic and vocational courses.
1: These classes and workshops were arranged along one side of a wide hallway, and on the other side were open stalls where Native Americans sold baskets, pots, and other indigenous art and handiwork. This contrast was part of the point of the model Indian school's existence. It sent a message. Without these schools, the students would grow up to be selling so-called primitive crafts from a blanket on the ground.
0: The school also had a chapel, and that was where the students gave performances and recitations in the afternoons. As the fair wore on, this actually became a really popular attraction. The crowds got a lot too big to fit inside the chapel. So whenever the weather allowed, these performances were moved outdoors.
1: When S.M. McCowan contacted Fred Campbell to ask Fort Shaw Indian School to participate in the model Indian school, it was up to Campbell to choose which students should attend. And for him, this was an incredibly easy decision. The basketball team was famous all across the state of Montana. They were all exemplary students, as well as being very responsible and mature. Remember, they're all traveling together all the time and seem to have no problems. Uh, So upon receiving this invitation, Campbell told them that if they continued to do so well in their academic and vocational work, and if they kept playing as well as they had been until it was time to travel to St. Louis, they would be the ones to go. This is a strategic move on
0: Campbell's part. The team had become well-known enough in Montana that they could easily arrange games as they traveled to the state to help raise money for the trip. And as the word spread, he thought crowds would probably follow them as they got farther and farther away from home. Knowing that there was a chance they would pass through towns that didn't yet have a basketball team... Campbell also expanded the size of the team's roster so that if there was no local team or if the local team didn't think it could make a respectable showing against Fort Shaw team, they'd have enough players on hand for scrimmage games. This would also let them play five-on-five exhibitions at the World's Fair if there was no team to play against there.
1: And we're going to talk about who the players were and how they got ready after we first pause for a little sponsor break.
0: When building out the team that would travel to the World's Fair, Fred Campbell, who was coach, kept the trio who had performed so well in earlier games. Nettie Worth remained center, and Minnie Burton and Emma Sansaver were both still forwards. Nettie's older sister Lizzie, who was 23, had recently graduated from Carlisle Indian School, and she came on board as a chaperone and a substitute player. Josephine Langley, who had been with the team from the beginning and had previously taken on a similar role, was at this point engaged to be married, and she left the team to take a full-time job at the school.
1: Also remaining from the 1902 team was Belle Johnson, who had been friends with Josie Langley when they were both living on the Blackfeet Reservation. Belle's mother sent her and her siblings to Fort Shaw on Josie's encouragement, and Josie took them under her wing when they were orphaned after their mother's death in 1900.
0: Rounding out the 1904 team were Katie Snell, Jenny Butch, Rose LaRose, Flora Lucero, Sarah Mitchell, and Genevieve Healy, who was known as Jen. Katie, Jenny, and Sarah were all Assiniboine. Rose LaRose was Shoshone and Chippewa on her father's side and Bannock on her mother's. Jen Healy was Grovant, and Flora was Chippewa. Most of them had been substitute players in their previous season.
1: Part of the agreement for their getting to go to St. Louis was continuing to play as well as they had been. But they didn't exactly get that opportunity. The state had not developed a formal structure for pairing teams against one another, There was no statewide association or organization setting standards for games, playoffs, and championships. It was the responsibility of individual schools to work out game schedules, and Fort Shaw did not get that done.
0: The reasons for not getting that done are not entirely clear, and it could have been a product of several factors, like the general difficulties of scheduling games all across the state when there was not an organized way to do it, reluctance by other teams to play against Fort Shaw, which by this point had proven itself to be a powerhouse, and just being more focused on preparing for a multi-month trip to St. Louis. According to the Anaconda Standard, it was because, quote, there is no girls team in the state that can give them anything like a tussle. They stand alone and unrivaled.
1: Whatever the reason, Fort Shaw just didn't get much of a competitive schedule together for the 1903 season. So instead of playing against other teams, Fort Shaw spent most of the season playing scrimmage games. This gave the new players more opportunities to play and practice performing in front of a crowd. Meanwhile, the school's vocational classes made new uniforms, still with long-sleeved tops with sailor collars and bloomer-like pants with red and white trim to distinguish between the two scrimmage teams. In addition to
0: all their scrimmage exhibitions, the young women had a lot of other skills to to brush up on before going to the World's Fair. In addition to doing their academic and vocational work in front of an audience at the Model Indian School they would be performing in mandolin recitals, doing literary recitations and giving demonstrations of gymnastics and calisthenics.
1: Lizzie Worth acted as choreographer for their demonstrations. And Fort Shaw's music teacher, Fern Evans, set the program and trained them for their musical recitals. Lily B. Crawford trained them in their literary recitations, which was the one aspect of their preparation that the girls struggled with. Most of the girls had been playing team games together since childhood, and they had been studying music since they entered Fort Shaw. The school's music program was also highly regarded, with the band accompanying the basketball team and holding performances at halftime and after the game. But almost none of them really had any experience speaking in front of a crowd or reciting a literary piece for a crowd's enjoyment.
0: I should make it clear that they likely all had experience with music from before they entered the school, but the school was really where they had formal education in music. The piece they prepared for their literary recitation was from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha. In particular, it was part 20, The Famine. They also did an interpretive performance called Song of the Mystic, which was a dance that they performed in white robes and this whole dance uh, and the the robe that they were wearing was
1: described as just dazzlingly beautiful to watch. For their recitation, uh, they were to wear ceremonial buckskin dresses, which was a challenge. At Fort Shaw, the girls were only allowed to wear uniforms. And back home, Indian agents, which were government appointees that sort of served as liaisons with uh, Native peoples, had strongly discouraged the wearing of traditional Native garments. So finding enough buckskin dresses and beaded breastplates for this recitation actually proved to be very difficult.
0: As they prepared to go to St. Louis, the basketball team added these recitations, dances, and recitals to their schedule so they would follow up their exhibition games with concerts afterward, and the cost of admission went toward their funds for the trip.
1: Through the early spring of 1904, the Fort Shaw team, the band, and a few other students who had a particular knack for performance traveled to Anaconda, Butte, and Missoula playing what was billed as a farewell game and performance, the public's last chance to see them before they left for St. Louis. After the scrimmage game, they'd change out of their uniforms and into their traditional attire for an evening of music, recitation, and dance.
0: The Model Indian School at the St. Louis World's Fair was scheduled to open on June 1st, 1904, and the Fort Shaw team had to join a little later. Because of their school commitments, they weren't actually able to leave until the start of June. They traveled by wagon and then train, doing something of a whistle-stop tour through Montana, North Dakota, and Minnesota before turning south toward Missouri.
1: They arrived on the fair's Montana Day. That was June 14th, 1904. And they played a mandolin recital not long after they got off the train. I'm just going to say that sounds exhausting to me. I can barely get off the
0: airplane and come right to the office and start working. And they had been in transit on a train for a couple of weeks, got off the train and played a mandolin recital.
1: All of this sounds exhausting. Go play a basketball game and then change clothes and you're going to dance for a while and you're going to play some music and you're going to do recitation.
0: Yes. That's exhausting. It is. And we're going to talk about the time that they spent doing this in St. Louis after another quick sponsor break. As we alluded to before the break It had taken the Fort Shaw basketball team And their coach and chaperones About two weeks to travel from school to St. Louis Once they got there, they kept up a busy schedule In addition to their demonstration classes At the Model Indian School They had regularly scheduled performances Of their Hiawatha recitation Song of the Mystic And their mandolin concertos Twice a week, weather permitting, they held basketball exhibitions in the courtyard outside of the model school. The players had downtime. They usually spent it down at the Pike,
1: which became a favorite place to wander and watch and try out new foods. Most of their games on the fairgrounds were scrimmages, but they did actually leave the fairgrounds to play against several local high school teams. Even though they never had a home court advantage and they did not have the welcoming crowd that they had grown used to back in Montana, they still won every single time.
0: If you've listened to our live show from Dallas on Pierre de Freddy and the modern Olympic Games, you'll know that in 1904, the Olympic Games were held in St. Louis at the same time at the, as the World's Fair. Unsurprisingly, this led to some problems, but it also meant... The, <laughs> There were a lot of athletic activities to take in in St. Louis, including basketball games. But the Fort Shaw basketball team was really the only opportunity to see women's sports. Women weren't officially allowed to participate in the Olympic Games yet, and women's basketball would not be an Olympic sport for another 70-plus years. The team did, however, get the honor of playing an exhibition game at the Olympics.
1: Yeah, if you'll recall, these two events happening abutted right against each other, caused so much confusion. Some people didn't even know they that the Olympics were happening. Some of them that were actually in the Olympics thought they were playing at the World Fair. Um, aside from those couple of early games in their first season of competitive play, at this point, the Fort Shaw Indian school girls basketball team was undefeated. News coverage of their games suggested that they were unstoppable, speedier and more agile than the other teams, and adept at feints and strategies that their opponents just could not match. So, Philip Stremmel
0: of Missouri decided it was time for somebody to rise to this challenge. He put together an all-star team to play against Fort Shaw in a three-game match to determine who would be champion of the World's Fair.
1: He hand selected past members of St. Louis's Central High School team, taking the best of the best from the years that Central had been state champions. This alumna team trained together with the specific goal exclusively of defeating Fort Shaw. The games were to take place over three Saturdays.
0: The first game was held on September 3rd, 1904, and Fort Shaw won 24 to 2. Still not the colossal scores that happen today, but that's a big disparity. And they did it even though Emma Sansover was only recently back on the court having sprained her ankle in one of their games against the local high school. In the words of the St. Louis Dispatch, quote, to the great surprise of several hundred spectators, the girls from Fort Shaw were more active, more accurate, and cooler than their opponents.
1: <laughs> At the next scheduled Saturday... Stremel and the St. Louis alumna team didn't even show up, forfeiting the entire series.
0: Apparently, though, the team was not actually content to lose the series by forfeit. They asked for a second match, which took place on October 8th, this time in front of the Model Indian School. So many people came to watch that security had to be called to clear the playing field and keep the crowd held back.
1: Fort Shaw won again, 17-6 this time, making them the undisputed champions of the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition. And even though there was no official governing body for a World Basketball League, the public consensus was that they were world champions as well.
0: Even though the World's Fair was to run until December, the Model Indian School was really only built as a summer building. It was just not equipped to withstand cold temperatures or wintry weather. So not long after that October 8th championship, the Fort Shaw students, together with the rest of the Model school student body, helped dismantle it, and then they packed up and went home. In their journals and their letters, the players unsurprisingly described this as being both a sorrow and a relief. Like they had, a, they had seemed to have a really good time in St. Louis, but they were also eager to get back home to the rest of their classmates and eventually to their families.
1: Maybe not to be working an incredibly grueling sports and performance schedule. <laughs>
0: it is a grueling. Sp- it surprises me that they, um, that they were able to spend as much time on the Pike as they did. Like that was really their favorite place to go anytime they did not have something on their schedule to do.
1: Yeah. The Fort Shaw girls basketball team continued its undefeated streak through 1906 as its members became adults and either left school or graduated. Though they were invited to the Lewis and Clark exposition of 1905, by that point their reputation as a team was so formidable that no one wanted to play against them. Only a couple world champion team members were still enrolled in the school by 1907, which is the year that Fred Campbell left as school superintendent to take a job at the Fort Peck Indian Reservation as an allotting agent.
0: Today, there is a monument to the team at the former site of Fort Shaw Indian School. It's shaped like an arch that reads 1904 World Champions Fort Shaw Indian School. There's an inscribed stone with a picture of the team and the players' names on it beneath the arch.
1: It's not actually clear what happened to all of the 1904 Fort Shaw players after the end of the season. Most of them went on to finish school, marry, and have families. Some later worked as seamstresses, teachers, nurses' aides, and interpreters. Several died at sadly early ages, including Minnie Burton, who died in childbirth at 33, and Emma Sansiver, who died of septicemia after the birth of her ninth child when she was 39. Jenny Butch died in 1909 of a lethal dose of salts, uh, with foul play actually suspected in her death. Flora Lucero died of diabetes in 1958. Jen Healy outlived the rest of her team, dying in 1981 at the age of 93.
0: Apart from their physical talent and skill on the court, the girls' basketball team at Fort Shaw is an amazing example of resilience in the face of adversity. In addition to the general experience of growing up in a boarding school that was meant to erase their own culture and replace it with another one, several of the girls experienced personal tragedies in their earlier life or while at school. Many had lost immediate family members before being enrolled or learned of the deaths of parents, siblings, and other family members back at home while they were studying or actually lived through those deaths when illnesses like typhoid and smallpox struck the school.
1: This was not limited to their time at Fort Shaw. A five-year-old died of unknown causes during an outbreak of fever that coincided with a heat wave at the Model Indian School in July of 1904, leading the Pima Indian School kindergarten to go back to Arizona territory early.
0: Yeah, the unknown causes was the officially recorded cause of death, but it was pretty apparent that the, the child was sick and the school was vastly overheated. Some of these tragedies took place during the playing season. Emma Sansover's mother struggled with alcoholism and she had become involved with an abusive man. Emma learned from a newspaper report that her mother had disappeared and was suspected to have been murdered just before a game in 1903.
1: During the team's tour in the early spring of 1904, Katie Snell's little brother George and their cousin Fred Cunahan both ran away from school and they were caught in a blizzard. George survived but had severe frostbite and Fred died. The two boys, who were both just seven, had apparently been inspired by the successful escape of four older boys who had sneaked away before the storm and successfully hopped a train back home before the storm hit.
0: That last tragedy really highlights one of the disparities of this story. We spent a lot of time in part one talking about the system of Indian boarding schools in the United States and how the conditions there were often miserable and even abusive for the students. The girls' basketball team had a lot of privileges. They wrote about their time on the team and at the fair as a joyful one. They made a remarkable name for themselves and for the school, But this doesn't erase the experience of their classmates, who were not so comparatively fortunate.
1: Although their enrollment started to decline in the 19-teens, federal off-reservation boarding schools have continued to operate in the decades since then. Fort Shaw closed in 1910, and Carlisle Indian Industrial School closed in 1918. Until the 1960s, the boarding schools that continued to operate still had a goal of westernizing and Americanizing their students and erasing Native cultures. By 1973, about 60,000 Native students were enrolled in boarding schools on and off reservations.
0: The focus of these schools started to change in the 1970s, largely through Native activism. And today, there are still a handful of federal boarding schools in operation, run by the Bureau of Indian Education at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is part of the United States Department of the Interior. Now, these schools are generally focused on students who are at risk for drug abuse, suicide, and other serious issues. Rather than teaching only in English and discouraging Native practices, the schools today actively teach Native languages and cultural practices in addition to other academic subjects.
1: But these boarding schools continue to be the subject of controversy, everything from government budget cuts to low graduation rates and achievement scores and a general question of whether the federal government should be running boarding schools for Native students at all. There's an ongoing movement for tribes and nations to assume control over those schools themselves. To circle back to
0: basketball as we close out, it is a hugely popular sport today in many Native American communities with a really fast-paced style of play that's come to be known as res ball. Even so, it was only in 2011 that Tani Robinson became the first Native American woman drafted into the WNBA. Basketball. We did a sports episode, Tracy. I know. I did. You, a sports- you
1: did research on sports
0: things. I know. I did a, a two-part podcast on sports ball, which is uh, still kind of astounding to me. I said in part one that I would be really um, hard-pressed to like sit all the way through a football game, which is a thing that I did. In high school as part of the color guard in the marching band. Yeah. But I could not tell you what was going on on the field at <laughs> any point. I just, I yelled when people yelled and then I went out onto the, the field during halftime and did my flag routine.
1: Yeah. I never really got into football. Hockey and baseball, I have both watched, uh, with some f- fervor, but football has never been my. My sport neither has basketball for that matter, but lots of people love them and get great enjoyment from them. My best friend is a football fanatic. <laughs> so I hear a lot about it during the season. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when I, um, we made that reference in part one to the Carlisle Indian schools football team. And I was listening, I was doing some research about that because I felt like we should acknowledge it. It would be weird not to say something about it since, you know, it has parallels to to these two episodes in so many different ways. But I was listening to this explanation about how the football rules at the time differed from the football rules now. And it got into this whole thing about the first downline. And I was like, I'm out. I don't <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, Uh, yeah. You know where your wall is. I do. It's, it's one of those things where I have an almost visceral inability to understand it. So many times in my life, I have, I have read what the first downline is and it's just, it won't stay in my brain. It falls directly out the other side. That's okay. Anyway, you you got
1: other stuff in your brain. Do you have listener (laughs) mail in your brain? I do. And it is
0: really great. Uh, it is from Laura. Laura wrote an email titled Aaron Burr. And a mummified head. Uh, so, of course, I had to read that.
1: I love everything about it right <laughs> out of the gate.
0: <laughs> Laura says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I just wanted to say thanks for a great podcast. Recently, I enjoyed your feature on Theodosia Burr-Alston and the throwback to the episode about her father, Aaron. Having grown up in Australia, I wasn't familiar with their stories and found their lives extremely interesting. So much so, I went on to do some extra reading and found a small connection to my own life. I learned that after his failed Mexico venture, Aaron Burr escaped to Europe and eventually London. Here, he was befriended by the noted social reformer Jeremy Bentham. In fact, the pair became so close that Burr wrote to Theodosia of his new confidant, quote, he is indeed the most perfect model that I have seen or imagined of moral and intellectual excellence. He is the most intimate friend I have in this country and my constant associate. I live in his house and compose a part of his family. The reason that this is so interesting to me is that I am very familiar with old Jeremy Bentham. In fact, I see him pretty much every day, despite the fact that he died in 1832. Laura begins talking about the University College of London and goes on to say, one of my favorite parts of the old campus is the auto icon of its spiritual founder, you guessed it, Bentham. Essentially, this auto icon is his mummified remains sitting on top of a chair clothed in his actual black suit and hat, complete with glasses and cane. To fit with his dying wishes, he left his body to science, and it was dissected in a public lecture by a friend, after which the skeleton was preserved. Bentham originally wanted his head preserved, also using techniques traditional to the Maori people of New Zealand But the process went horrifically wrong. Please see the attached article for a picture. A wax likeness was placed on the auto icon instead, and the disfigured head was displayed separately until a series of pranks by a rival university saw it stolen and held for ransom. According to legend, it was also hidden in a luggage locker in a Scottish train station and used for football practice. Not surprisingly, it was then locked safely away in, in 1975 until just recently when a new exhibition at the university placed the head back on public display to explore life, death and preservation. And then there's a link to an article about this bizarre severed head situation that was just there lying around for people to look at. Uh, yeah, it was amaz- amazing to me that a piece of history that I pass by every day was so connected to big events happening around the world. So many years ago, events that I learned about from your podcast, keep up the excellent work, Laura. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I love that letter. Uh, it's really great. Um, when, so, uh, when, when we get email, we have a little thing where we can star the email that captures our attention in some way. And this is one where I starred it when we got it, which was on Halloween. And then, as is the case with what the first downline means, my brain just flushed it completely out. <laughs> and so this morning when I was getting listener mail together and I looked at my starred messages, I was like, the what with the severed head? I love it. I love so, it. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Laura. If you would like to write to us, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash missed in history. Our Twitter is missed in history. Our Tumblr and our Pinterest and our Instagram are all also missed in history. If you come to our website, which is missed in you will find a searchable archive of all the episodes we've ever done. Show notes for the episodes Holly and I have done that includes links to uh, slash notations of all of the research that we have used for these podcasts. So you can do that if you come visit us at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.